Today's edition of The Literary Life is taken from a recent post-election virtual discussion held in conjunction with Writers Against Trump in an attempt to address and answer three of the most important questions facing us today. What just happened? What is happening now? And what must happen next? My guests include Russell Banks, Edward Stantecott, Richard Blanco, and Fernand Amandi. Welcome to The Literary Life. And I am very proud to be able to uh, welcome to the screen three really good friends, and a fourth hopefully will be coming later because he's been having trouble getting on. Um, and I'm going to introduce all of them at once, and then they're going to kind of take it from there. And at the end, we're going to have time for Q&A. But I thought if you're sitting the way I am on pins and needles, and you haven't been near your CNN or anything right now, the, um, the most up-to-date info that I can know is that right now where we stand is that Nevada being counted. Looks like it's going to go for Biden. Arizona is being counted. It could go either way. Georgia could go either way. North Carolina probably would go with Trump. And Pennsylvania looks like, if all goes as it should, that may crown the president, uh, who we hope will be Biden. And, uh, you know, that's who I hope, and I'm sure everybody else here does too. So that's kind of where we stand right now. But we're discussing it with my good friend, Russell Banks. Uh, Russell, as you know, is twice a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, he's one of the best writers we have and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He has been translated into 20 different languages, has received every kind of award there is, uh, including the Commonwealth Award for Lit. He put my kids through preschool, through some of his earlier works like Continental Drift and some of the others that I discovered when I was a young young bookseller. He lives in upstate New York, but I won't hold it against him. But I really think of him as a guy who's from Miami because he also maintained a residence with his wife, Chase Twitchell, on Miami Beach. Also with us is the wonderful Edwige Stantecott, whom I've also known for many, many years when she was a young student at the, uh, at the Mishner Institute. Uh, back, I don't know when that was, but it was a very long time ago. And I knew even then that I was in the presence of greatness. Um, she's written, you know, so many different books, including Brother, I'm Dying. I particularly love her essay, The Art of Death. Her new collection of short stories is Everything Inside, Stories. And it won the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Story Prize, the Vilcek Prize in Lit. She also has won a MacArthur Genius Grant, and she's published everywhere. And she's also done some amazing, amazing community work uh, here in Miami. And I, I'm anxious to hear uh, Edwidge's point of view. And then, of course, there's the great Richard Blanco, uh, one of the great poets that we have, one of the great writers, and one of the great community activists that we have here in Miami, even though Richard lives in Maine. <laughs> this is, isn't it true? It's like a Miami story. It's the snowbirds and uh, <laughs> all of us who live here near Ram. Yeah. It's the, the only way we can get there now. 
Right, it's the snowbird effect in reverse, it seems like. Uh, Richard's collections include City of a Hundred Fires, Directions to the Beach of the Dead, and How to Love a Country. We all know that he was the poet uh, who read at Obama's second inauguration. And lastly, someone who's up there he is, Fernand Amandi is with us as well. And Fernand is the managing partner of Ben Dixon and Amandi, the nation's leading multilingual and multi-ethnic opinion research and strategic communications consulting firm. He's You can see him on MSNBC. He teaches at the University of Miami. And he also hosts a great podcast that you must listen to called Strange Days Podcast. So I've approached each one of these guys and have asked them to give us their sense of in response to those questions. So I'm going to start with Russell. Russell, you're on. All right. Mitchell, thank you for having me on this program and for putting it together. And, um, and, and hello, my friends. It's wonderful to be with you, even this in this virtual way. Uh, Mitchell, I want to take your three questions. Uh, what just happened? What is happening now? And what must happen next? Um, in a more or less literal and straightforward way to begin the discussion, if that's okay. Uh, let's take the first one. Uh, what just happened? You know, it, it hasn't really happened yet. Uh, it's not over the election until all the votes are counted, despite what uh, President Trump says. Um, but a few things, a few things we know already, a few things anyhow, <laughs> to be uh, known about what just happened. It was, I think, at least from my point of view, um, remarkably peaceful as uh, up to now. It was remarkably professional and competent up to now. Um, it was the highest turnout ever. Um, this many Republicans have never voted before in any election. Uh, the mail-in and early voting were major factors uh, for the first time. Um, but I want to uh, point to a piece I read this morning in the New York Times by Charles Blow because he made some observations there that I wasn't totally aware of. And that tells me a little more about what just happened. Um, he noted that nearly three out of every five white voters in America voted for Trump. That's to me an amazing figure. He noted that um, this year, uh, black women's votes doubled from uh, 2016 to 8%, from 4% to 8% of, of Trump supporters. He noted that um, in 2008, 5% of black men voted for John McCain. He noted that LGBT people voting for Trump doubled from 2016, moving from 14% to 28%. And that in Georgia, the number of LGBT people who voted for Trump was uh, 33%. Trump, we know, received almost half of the votes cast, almost 50% of the votes cast, which is way, way more than what we have been calling his base. 
And I guess this leads me to conclude um, with regard to what just happened is that Trumpism is alive and well, regardless of who wins the election. As to what is happening now, I think we have a gathering storm with protests on both sides about to um, erupt. Uh, the Stop the Count, beginning with the Stop the Count protests versus the Count Every Vote protest. The both sides are lawyering up, trying to take it from the ballot box as fast as they can to the courthouse. And I think that uh, readying for a Biden victory, there are thousands of Trump supporters, vigilantes and militias who are right now strapping on the Kevlar and gassing up the pickups and breaking out the Glocks and the automatic weapon. And I think also readying for a Trump victory, there are thousands who are prepping for mass demonstrations on the streets, possibly riots and property destruction. As to what must happen next, I think we have to let the courts decide and the count. I think we have to stay off the streets until the decision is final. If Trump is the eventual winner, then I think we have to conduct mass demonstrations against his policies, but not against his victory. If Biden wins, I think we've got to start listening to those who voted for Trump and find out why. And it's not just because they're racist fools or deplorables or sexists or xenophobes. If Trump wins, the policies will not change except to become more authoritarian. And I think we have to, what we must do is respond with mass demonstrations. I think we have to be willing to risk arrest, all of us. I think we have to financially support progressive politicos and organizations. And I think we're as writers, we have to write, but we have to find ways to reach Trump's supporters that 50% of the people who voted for Trump. If Biden wins, I think he has to find ways, as we all do, but he most particularly to unify and not further divide the country. I think he has to travel to states where he lost and listen to the people who voted for Trump and who organized for him, who worked for Trump. I think he has to appoint a few Republicans to his cabinet. I think he has to convene reconciliation sessions at the White House, even including Mitch McConnell. And again, what do we writers have to do? I think we have to write. And we've got to find ways in our writing to humanize Trump's supporters. That, that's sort of my address to those three questions. And I'll toss it over to you guys from here. Ed Wage. Um, oh, what just, what just happened? I think, um, we realized, as Russell said, and um, in reference to that really powerful article by Charles Bo, that Trump's numbers grew, and that there are more avowed now people who you know who are committed to to Trump. Um, I also have seen that you know even in in little Haiti around here, these very um, not necessarily by people who live in the neighborhood, but these very visual manifestations of Trumpisms that I think people who who are participating in them know are intimidating. Uh, for example, the day of, uh, of the vote, even though at my local library there was no voting happening, but it's an early voting place. 
there was someone there with a pickup truck with a lot of flags and you know that is their right but they know what that means that symbolism means i think that whole that's a new level to the trump era that whole symbolism of all these uh, people on mass with the flags who are like trying to run the buses off the road that kind of that kind of trumpism is more out in on the open and i think however this turns out the next four years will be saturated with that um, trumpism is certainly not going away and so much so that you know where we live you know there's i feel like the, these politicians are molding themselves in the in the image of trump you know you had the other day marco rubio who was uh in front of a group of trump supporters making jokes about that bus being run off the road and it, it's almost as if he's realized oh this works now let me try it right and so I think what we've also learned and what has happened that new coalitions are forming, you know, both on the Democratic side and also on the Trump side with the numbers that that um, Russell mentioned, even though some have said that the numbers might be higher than they than reported because most so many Democrats voted by mail. But let's you know, there are there seems to be new coalitions. And I think we're also learning from this to stop making monoliths of groups of people. Right. Like I, for example, have to accept that there are Haitians for Trump, even though he called our country a shithole, even though he's reduced, like he's been trying to terminate TPS for it since he got into power. There are Haitians who support Trump and they have their reasons um, for, for doing it. Um, so I think we can't make those assumptions anymore that everybody from a certain group is going to vote a certain way. I think... Um, that's 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 done probably most broadly with sort of the Latino uh, group and where people are under or the or the black voters or you know the the African American vote. I think the that that's I hope what's just happened is that we learned uh, sort of the multiplicity of groups like within groups or, or the multiplicity of thought within different different groups. Um, what's happening now? I think. Um, COVID is still happening. People are still out of work. There's a lot of pain in the communities. Um, and, you know, I think there are people who, you know, I've, I've spoken to people, you know, who said, my life is not going to change no matter what happens there. Like, there are people who feel that, that they sense that, that, that they're not cared about on either side. Um, and I, I think what should happen next falls into that category because um, there's the risk that if Biden wins, people will be complacent now. It's been such a, uh, you, know, you're, you know, people are so traumatized that some people personally from, from the past four years that suddenly they might, you know, they're like, huh, you know, I think there might, a uh, kind of complacency might fall into there. Um, that's very important to avoid. I know a lot of people who are activists who are in the movement, for them it's always the long haul, right? It's not just one election. It's not just one moment, it's the whole long haul. And, and they, they always think about the day-to-day -day lives of people. And so we don't stop at elections. You know, people have to stay engaged and stay involved no matter what happens. For people who are affected day-to-day -day by these issues, for whom they're not really theoretical issues, you know, issues like certainly the co you know, what's happening with COVID and healthcare, which definitely is on the line soon immigration issues like TPS, uh, temporary protected status, and, um, and environmental issues, all of these things 
um, you'll still need to engagement, you know, whether it's uh, Joe Biden or whether uh, Donald Trump remains. Gosh, I, this is like a four hour program. <laughs> I mean, there's so much I want to put across and think about, but <clears throat> I guess I'll take a little bit more of an anecdotal um, uh, sense of things. Um, as I always like to say, um, poets and writers in general, when things are going really good, we're always looking at what's not working. <laughs> and when things are going really bad, we're always trying to find out what's the hope, what's the light at the end of the tunnel. And I gotta say, much as like what we're echoing, uh, both uh, Edwidj and uh, Russell are echoing, um, you know, I was right, I sort of, I, I sort of knew something was coming down the pipeline artistically and thinking about these same issues of this is just a temporary band-aid, this idea of like, yes, we've elected an African-American president, amazing, you know, corner turned in America, but we can, I, there was still a lot unresolved. There has been no reckoning with America and race and so many other issues, right? And I think, so um, I, I actually sort of started writing about that in this book that just came out that seems like it could have been published yesterday, but I started working on it like seven years ago. But I just want to acknowledge that, you know, that the, the, the uh, we call Trumpism or something, something that in a way was always there. It just needed permission to come up because when we look at the long history of this country, I mean, this is a country we have all these great ideals of, you know, uh, you know, give us your free, I mean, you're tired, you're huddled masses, the whole, you know, and they are great ideals. But when we really look at the deep history of our nation, of imperialism, of, of slavery that we're still not, have not had a reckoning with, it's all, it's, it's not gone away. It's just sort of seething there. And what I think has happened is that it found a, it found a, a spokesperson for that. It found a, someone who can rouse those ill feelings or those uh, feelings, right or wrong, but their feelings and give them permission and sort of like turn them on. Um, you know, I compare it, it reached to like sort of, you know, our uh, Caribbean history, Latin American history of who you go for, <laughs> you go for who is most discontent. And that also is across the board. And I love what we're having that conversation too. I think what we're realizing, you know, there's classism in America, something we don't talk about. I mean, class depends a lot on where you position yourself in relation to these issues. And that happens in Latino communities, right? Uh, I'll speak for my own Cuban brethren, you know, that, you know, the, the Cubans that are more established certainly have another perspective than the Cubans that come in, you know, come just arrive in the country. So, so I think that's part of the mix of what's not been looked by what's happened, meaning what's not been looked at, but yeah. I think what's happened is that um, we've just had a, a Trump turned on the hose, uh, but the water the, the water was already there, um, and so in a way, uh, in a way, I'm I'm not glad, but I'm in awe maybe, or something. That at least we're starting to have a reckoning with these issues in ways that aren't just like we said. Well, we elect a Democrat, everything's fine, everything goes away, and you know, put blinders on. So that's one thing I want to say. Um, that idea that um, you know we, this is something that's worth oh one one more a little anecdote as part of the working on the Obama Foundation we had a meeting a few days uh, right after the 2016 election and I I may be misquoting this but I think David Axelrod walked in and said they had done some numbers and 27 percent of people that voted for Obama voted for Trump. So to add that into this complex statistics that we're just sort of looking at very myopically, but when you really break out those numbers that you said, Russell, are like alarmingly interesting, uh, if not 
uh, if not anything else, just to see where that where that falls apart, uh, where, where all that all that lies, where we are now. Um, I think I guess we are at a in some ways a, a point in reckoning in America that we've never been before, at least not in my lifetime. Um, uh, and again, like I said, I think in in that way, I'm I'm glad we're having this very conversation. I think there's conversations being had in America that have just not been had. And um, I guess where we're going, I just got to echo what both of uh, both of you have said, you know, this can't be just like Biden wins, you know, oh, everything's great again. We can't we can't let this one go. This this reckoning, this conversation needs to continue to happen. And and looking at the complexities and intricacies of these, you know, we live in a very complicated country and in a very complicated world demographically. We can't just say Latino anymore. We just can't say LGBT anymore. We just can't say this is this is as as long as wide as it, as it is deep. But the most important takeaway for me is about humanizing. I think we have politics have completely objectified and dehumanized us all of us, and in a way has gotten permeated into the very act of even what car you drive today says who you are. If you drive a Subaru, you may be a Trumper, but no, if you drive a Subaru, we assume that, you know, if you drive a red pickup truck, you're a Trumper, right? So I think we got to stop looking at the world in these in these, in these these uh, red and blue colors and look, at, and look at the purple in between. And if time allows me, I, I, I would like to... And as I always say, my poems are smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> I would like to end in a poem, if that's fine, Mitchell. Do we have time? Uh, that speaks to this very issue. Um, it's inspired by the Declaration. It's inspired by the Declaration of Independence, but turning it on the head and calling it the Declaration of Interdependence, which is, I think, where we need to move forward. Also, it's inspired by the uh, the greeting of the Zulu people um, that say. Um, Instead of hey, good morning, look someone in the eye and say, "I see you," and that's where the poem ends. And I think we've stopped seeing each other. We stopped. We just we're statistics. We're we're banners. We're you know colors on a map. We can discount entire regions of the country just because they're red on a map, not knowing that there's real people that live there. And so this speaks to that, um, to stop stereotyping ourselves and really, and I think that's what the Biden, the challenge of the Biden presidency, knock on wood, has to do is not forget this and not, not you know, just a process of, of humanizing America again and having conversations and, and um, stop stereotyping each other. Declaration of Interdependence, and it borrows obviously um, excerpts from the Declaration of Independence. Such has been the patient's sufferance, where a mother's bread, instant potatoes, milk, where her three children pleading for bubblegum and their father, where the three minutes she steals his page through a tabloid, needing to believe even stars' lives are as joyful or as bruised. Our repeated petitions have been answered by repeated injury. Where her second job serving an executive absorbed in his Wall Street Journal at a sidewalk cafe shadowed by skyscrapers, where the shadows of the fortune he won and the family he lost, where his loss and the lost, where a father in a coal town who can't mind the life anymore because we're too much and too little has happened for too long. A history of repeated injuries and usurpations, 
where the grid of his main streets blacked out windows and graffitied truths, where street in another town lined with palm trees at home with a Peace Corps couple who collects African art, where their dinner party talk of wines, wielded picket signs and burned draft cards, where what they know, it's time to do more than just read the New York Times, buy fair trade coffee and organic corn. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress. We're the farmer who grew that corn, who plows into his couch as worn as his back by the end of the day, where his TV set blaring news having everything, nothing to do with the field dust in his eyes, where his son rested in the ache of his arms. We are his son. We are a black teenager who drove too fast or too slow, talked too much or too little, moved too quickly but not quick enough, with a blast of the bullet leaving the gun, with the guilt and the grief of the cop who wished he hadn't shot. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We're the dead. We're the living. Amid the flicker of vigil candlelight, we're in a dim cell with an inmate reading Dostoevsky, where his crime, his sentence, his amends, with the mending of ourselves and others, where Buddha serving soup at a shelter alongside a stockbroker, where each other's shelter and hope, a widow's 50 cents in a collection plate and a golfer's $10,000 pledge for a cure, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We are the cure for the hatred caused by our despair. We're the good morning of a bus driver who remembers our name, the tattooed man who gives us his seat on the subway, where every door held open with a smile when we look into each other's eyes, the way we behold the moon. We are the moon. We are the promise of one people, one breath, declaring to one another, I see you, I need you, I am you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so very much. That was really wonderful. Thank you, Fernan. Thank you, Mitchell. <laughs> you know, I, I was just thinking, um, John F. Kennedy scheduled Robert Frost as the preamble to his inaugural speech. So I don't know what he was thinking, but he ended up uh, delivering one. So to follow Richard Blanco's uh, masterful poem, which I think he may have debuted here for the first time for us. Thanks a lot, Richard. <laughs> fantastic. And thank you, Russell. And, and Edwidge and all of you. Um, I, I, I think a lot, maybe not with the prose and, and the beautiful artistry that Edwidge and, and Russell and of course Richard just talked about, but in answering the question, what just happened? Um, let me paraphrase in this conversation about writers against Trump, two writers that are great inspirations to me. Uh, one is Churchill, the other Morrison. Uh, no, this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Is it the end of Trumpism or the beginning of the new American Republic? Well, we, we will find that out, uh, perhaps in a matter of even moments. Perhaps by the time this conversation ends, we will know definitively. But until then, we still find ourselves in this state of suspended animation, a purgatorial intermediary period where we really don't know yet and we won't know until the decision is made what country we are. We know that the greatest number of our citizens in our history went, all of us as a collective body, to decide who we were, less 
hours ago, and that decision and that verdict is about to be rendered. But whatever the verdict is that is rendered, I think more important than anything else in asking ourselves the questions, what happened? What happens now and what happens next? At the center of that is the idea that it is a time for deciding. We have to decide as citizens, as friends, as sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, if we do want to choose the path of reconciliation. Because it's easy to say those words. It's easy to say we need to unify, we need to come together again and reconcile. But when much of that reconciliation has to do with people that were proponents of what I believe, and I think many of us watching believe is, is evil, and the dark side of the American dream, the dark side of the spirit of this wonderful country, is that really a call for reconciliation? Or is it a call for reckoning? Is it a call for renewal or reinvention? And I think that those are the decisions we all need to figure out in this time for deciding. Because I think on the ballot was not just two men and two ideas and two parties. It was the concept of good faith and bad faith. 67 million of our fellow citizens and counting, I think, this time voted conscientiously for bad faith. They voted for lies and truth and dis disinformation and, every, and, and the destruction of everything we believed that the founders had set up. Luckily, as of this conversation, more than 72 million, which is about a spread of 4 million plus, chose what I think is decency and honesty and integrity. So again, as we look at these results, as we think about what is to come, it is the great unknown. We don't know. The future is not promised. Destiny is to be created. And in a matter of minutes, hours, or days, or weeks, what is exhilarating and disturbing about what is before us is we all must decide. And I don't think one of the decisions we can continue to do is to avoid and to ignore or else the decay and the rot that we have seen bubble to the surface of our common American experience in this year of our Lord 2020 will only further spread, which is, I think, unfortunately, the goals of what others may want. But with that said, I, I think that the, the great benefit of this conversation is to engage and, and hopefully take advantage of the time for others to, to pepper us with questions. I could go into chapter and verse about numbers and about what's still to come and what the numbers tell us. But I wanted to at least speak to you, not so much as a political strategist or political pollster, but as an American citizen who is the son of exiles, the son of people who left their country because they wanted to raise their children and grandchildren in this one because of the freedoms, the values, and the democracy that this American nation represents. Shall we talk amongst ourselves? <laughs> and we have some questions from the audience, too. Sure. Okay, here's one for you, Russell, from Mamta Chowdhury. Russell, I appreciate your ideas about reaching out across the aisle, but how do you work with people who negotiate in bad faith? Obama tried that. It seems like the divide is not so much of race, gender, age, as of where we get our information. So how do we work from the same reality if one half of the country doesn't trust facts? Well... I can't say that's true, that, that one half the country doesn't trust facts. 
a large portion of, of, of those people don't trust facts, perhaps those people, meaning those who voted for Trump. But uh, but I certainly don't believe that's true for uh, 69 million people out there. Um, they have other reasons for uh, for supporting Trump, and we have to find out what they are. Reconciliation or reaching across the island, I think, is possible. Uh, if it's possible in South Africa, it's possible here. Um, and uh, but there has to be uh, uh, a hand extended um, uh, from the position of power, and uh, and Biden, we presume, will be in a position of power, and uh, and with a with a, uh, a Democratic Congress. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, but perhaps it'll turn out not to be so unfortunate, a Republican uh, Senate, he can reach across the aisle. He can reach out a hand, not across the aisle, just extend a hand. Uh, and more importantly, perhaps extend an ear, listen. I mean, these guys uh, in, in the Senate and, and in the House who have uh, been such a blockade against uh, any progressive uh, movements on, on the part of, of, uh, of governance uh, over the last, uh, well, really, uh, the, the two uh, Obama administrations and now this one. Um, they, they know who their people, um, the people at home. And um, they have reasons for voting and standing the way they do that aren't just simply that they believe in lies. It's much more complex. I mean, as, as I think everybody was saying here in this group, locking 69 million people together as those who believe in lies is not seeing very clearly who they are. And uh, we have to start there. I see you, as uh, Richard's poem uh, says. We have to see each other, and we have to see those that we've been, you know, uh, blind to. Uh, I, I think... Uh Going along the line of Mamta's question, I'm wondering, though, because I, I feel as though the last election cycle, a lot of energy was put in trying to, quote, unquote, understand the Trump voter. And in a way, I think, as Fernandra said, that person just reaffirmed their choice. And, and then that notion of trying to you know, I'm not saying not to reach out, but trying to interpret them is might be condescending to them. No, like to to say like they have a reason they made it, and it assumes also that we'll be able to carry them over some line. So I I I think I'm I I, I agree. I think with the notion of because some people are we're dealing with this in side families, right within like. There, there are people who are married, who are demo, you know, who are dealing with their marriage. The people who are dealing with friendships. There, so there is. I mean, as writers, we know the the nuance of it. But I think it's probably. I'm thinking that it's now. Um, however, it's dealt with. It's just as a reality that this is just what it is, and these are people who have made this choice for whatever their individual reasons. But I. I don't know that there is, I don't know that it's, I, maybe you can answer that. I don't, what, I don't see the final goal of then trying to, the reaching out for, at, you know, I mean, we, we're, people are going to reach across the bed because they're married to the person. They're going to reach across the table. But I'm saying like the, I don't quite understand the understanding the Trump 
voter project. I mean, I don't, I mean, I think because they have very specific reasons that they reject certain things. I'm, I, so I, I think I, I, I want to understand what do we get out of that? Like what, what is, what, what's the outcome ultimately? Because then it's just choices. Like some group of people have made a choice, other group of people have made a choice. But I feel like when we're constantly saying, let's understand them, let's understand them, let's write about them, let's, is that not condescending to them? I don't know. I don't think it's condescending to listen and to try to understand the, the, the real day to day, minute to minute level of fear and anxiety that, uh, that people experience and, and how they end up expressing that fear and anxiety and, and the forms that it takes uh, socially and, and politically is sort of, to me, secondary. They're only given a couple of choices to express that fear and anxiety um, and dread. Um, and uh, the, the political programs that they're given are given to them as if they weren't heard or seen. And I, I live in Trump country most of the year, upstate New York, which is uh, the northernmost extension in the Adirondack Mountains of, of, the Apple, of Appalachia. And most of my friends and neighbors up there are Trump supporters. And they're frightened. And they're poor. And they live week to week. And they're not even sure they're going to be able to pull that off. Um, and then they're told, and they're given only a couple of alternative ways of expressing those fears and anxieties and dreads. And I think that's because neither side is listening to them and imagining what it's like for them to live day to day, moment to moment. And, and that's where I think we, where we need to start. Um, and from there on out, build programs, build policies, build the governance and even a party, if necessary. I mean, I, I follow Bernie Sanders' campaign pretty closely and was a, have been a, and continue to be a supporter of his. And, and I think that's how he has thought and operated since the day I first met him in 1985 and he was mayor of, of Burlington, Vermont. Um, he starts with the day-to-day -day life of human beings the numbers of, of human beings who are poor and who are suffering uh, greatly exceed the number of those who don't and aren't. And so uh, he paid attention to them and built programs out from there and articulated those programs in terms of the day-to-day -day suffering of, of the people that surround him. That's all I think I'm trying to point to as a necessity, and it's something I have not seen politicians in either party do in my lifetime. Yes, I'm the I've oldest person been. on this panel. I've been around here now. No, you're right. So I, what? I was counting up the other day. I, I think 22 elections. I, I've just <laughs> never heard it first as, like, I've always wanted to understand it as a project, right? Because people always, it's often given as a command, go and, and you know, interpret the, you know, so I just, I'm, I'm really glad for your uh, elaboration. But one of the things I wanted to bring up, and as I'm hearing you talk about this, I think about what we just went through in Miami-Dade County. And there is a metaphor a little bit for what you guys are talking about. And that is that although it was an extremely divisive 
And if you look at it simply from the presidential and the congressional, southern, uh, southern county congressional races, it seemed like a disaster. But we just um, elected probably the most progressive mayor that we've ever had in Miami-Dade County, Daniela Lava-Levine. Now, what Daniela has done her whole career is pretty much what Russell was talking about. I think what it is is where you bring people together is not just through rhetoric. It's the rhetoric that divides people. Where you bring them together is by understanding that there's a shared and common economic interest. There are too many people who vote against their own interest because they're being dominated by a rhetoric that is aimed at them specifically. In the case in the southern part of Miami, it was communista and socialista and all of that. Mm. But these were working class people who were dominated by that. But if you can do as Daniela has done over a 30-year career, really get in there into the communities and work hard to try to get things done, to have people understand that there is a commonality of interests. I think that's what's really important, is to really do the work, not just, and, and I, Ed Weed, not just take the tour of the United States, meet people from the other side and write a book about it. It's really getting in there, doing the work, and bringing people together that way. Um, that might be a way forward. Because we have to get through the superstition somehow. We have to get through that venal rhetoric that's out there. When I heard a statistic that scared the hell out of me, that half of Trump supporters actually believe that QAnon is a real thing, it tells me that somebody else is dominating the rhetoric. And somehow those of us who deal with language have to take a hold of the rhetoric somehow. If I could just piggyback on Mitchell's point, I mean, yes, the rhetoric is important, but the problem with the rhetoric and the idea of reconciliation and when it meets the reality of politics is that when you're seeing people of bad faith reveal themselves, and I'm not talking now so much about the voters because, you know, th those are our fellow citizens and we've got to work and we've got to find a way to work it out. But with the other party, what happens next? Well, one of the things that we have to be very vigilant of that may happen next that we still can control. And I would advise all of you, you may want to move to uh, an established residency in Georgia by the, by the month of January, if you can, because if we do not win back a Senate majority, we cannot reconcile without policy. Policy is what changes people's lives. Uh, Richard Blanco, who served and was part of that uh, inaugural for the Obama administration that oversaw the implementation of a health care plan, that cuts through rhetoric because that affects people's lives. When Roosevelt created the job works program and literally gave Americans who were poor an opportunity to rise up. There is a policy problem because of the politicians on the Republican side who have shown an intransigence and an unwillingness to move forward along the lines of policy because they're not interested in policy, they're interested in power. It is difficult to change the lives of Americans through the system of national organization, which we have, which is politics and government. And without that, I don't think there, uh, th there should be any attempt at reconciliation, there should be attempt to drive through 
a, a, a political agenda that is designed to help the American people first and foremost. I've always wondered, and I forgot who said, that you can't solve the problem with the same problem, with the same paradigm that created it in the first place. And I also just, in the something that just surfaced for me now is where are our, our leaders that are not in politics per se? Where are, uh, it seems like you run for office, you lose, you go away and disappear and do nothing. So where are the social activist leaders? Um, that might be another alternative or another part of the answer maybe, where are, where are Martin Luther King's? Where I mean, Bernie Sanders, I think, approaches that, but still is in the in the same, you know, in the in the Lentraña del Montero, as as Martin said, you know. So um, I just want to throw that later into the conversation, maybe. But like, I think we also need a not a political lead, but leaders that are outside of that system that perhaps can pressure that system uh, in different ways. We 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 do have like grassroots leaders, and, and you know, and thank goodness for them. Thankfully, um, now the, the the problem is: are they always heard, right? But but they are the people who are here day to day doing that. And I think that's why, for example, um, where we live, that's why we got the fifteen. I, I see a, a, a nice question. That's why we got the the higher minimum wage. That's why we got some. You know, that's why Daniela got in. And so so there, I think the people who do the work day to day are the leaders who actually maybe they don't. They don't show up in the national politics, but they move the needle in ways that that affect people's lives on a daily basis. Here's a here's a, a couple of questions real quick. Um, this is from Anna, who says, I know many Trump voters who are single issue voters. They hate the way he behaves, but want to overturn Roe v. Wade, protect gun rights, keep government out of their lives, etc. Can that ever be reconciled? The other side doesn't agree with any of that. I'm happy to kind of take a quick stab at it because I would love to hear the panel's take as well. But look, I, I unfortunately, I think the answer is no, um, not because they're not people of conscience who are single issue voters that don't necessarily see other Americans as opinions as valid. But what we have learned from this election is they have cast their lot with a side that does not accept the findings of science, which has now led to 200 and 30,000 of our fellow citizens' preventable demise. We're finding challenges around the dealing of the most existential issue for life on planet Earth around, cl around climate. There can really be no false equivalency offered around some of these issues, I think, which is why if you are the Democratic Party leadership now and those under President-elect Biden, I think you have to have a full speed ahead approach with the political capital and the mandate, because let's acknowledge the election results were clearly a mandate for Joe Biden. He got more votes than any ever in American history. He will have won over 50% of the popular vote. And he will have at least at least 276 uh, electoral votes, maybe even 300. So you need to govern with the idea that you are there to represent the interests of the people that put you in office first. And then let the, 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 the malcontents or those that refuse stubbornly to work around common ground and common issue behind and, and, and in the wake of those decisions. Obviously, uh, I feel it differently than than you're arguing that that we we've got to find more than simply two ways of answering the question well, on all those individual issues, whether it's abortion or gun rights or the environment or uh, COVID. Uh, there have to be more than just simply two ways of answering 
there have to be three or five and find the one where the most of us can agree on and none of us are wholly uh, satisfied. Well, the, the next question deals with the anxiety that this entire discussion causes. <laughs> so this question is, Richard, thanks so much for reading that timely poem. We really need to see each other in these divisive times. But if the process gets delayed because of the Trump tactics, what can people like us do who encounter the incredible anxiety associated with it all? Well, I'm not a certified therapist or anything like that, but um, I'll, I'll share what I, uh, I guess the anxiety that I feel like we all feel and what I personally try to work myself through is, um, I mean, this is a particular interesting, a very pinpoint moment right now that we're dealing with. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's insane, right? Um, I just, the only thing where I find some kind of peace is to really look at things not if like what's happening right now just at this moment but rather to look at things maybe in a historical arc kind of this conversation where have we been where are we now where could we possibly go and thinking that you know the history of a country and the history of a nation is a pretty slow moving process actually um and so i i don't know that's what that's i don't know i hope that makes sense but that's how i abate my my uh, my anxiety is to sort of try to stay, take a step back, and for me in particular, by writing that poem was actually written several years ago. Before, and it's and it's kind of written out of that anxiety of sort of like seeing what I part of me was already feeling, not seeing but feeling perhaps. But uh, yeah, I I I I'm not I'm no expert in putting that anxiety behind. Um, maybe other panels have some tricks and some spells or something. <laughs> Essentially, I try to yeah try to take a step back and put it in context um, mostly. I just went for a long walk with my dog in the woods, <laughs> and, and it really chilled me out. <laughs> Let, let me be the one to make a case for anxiety. Anxiety is a good thing because anxiety means that we're not being complacent. We're not uh, underestimating the challenge of the moment. Uh, and in the same way that your body has an anxious response to when you uh, are suffering an illness or a disease, in the same way the body politic of our country is undergoing a challenge, that anxiety uh, is a very important uh, motivator, I think. So I, I at least embrace the anxiety, but also hope it ends very quickly on January 20th. <laughs> I was just gonna say like something that, I, that I've come up is like, I, I've always looked at my relationship with my country like almost like a marriage, like a, a, <laughs> a dysfunctional love affair. <laughs> and that kind of helps me contact, you know, like Edwidge was saying about like, you know, you reach out of bed when you have to you have a fight or, but it kind of always offers me an interesting analogy for a lot of things, including sometimes there's an impasse in a marriage and there's a deal breaker. Um, sometimes there are things that, Sometimes we're not listening to each other. We're not seeing the third answer, you know, or the third possibility, the fourth possibility, like Russell was saying. Um, um, so uh, that's so that analogy has always stayed with me. Yeah. Anyway, I hope that helps. Mitchell, you guess that? I was um, going to say, Edwidge, any, any thoughts? Yeah. Well, for me, it's uh, the anxiety is a little bit uh, extra when you have young kids at home, and. And they're very anxious. You know, the last go around, um, my one of my daughters was just telling me this time around 
that in 2016, when she went to school the next day, all, there were so many kids who were crying because they thought they were going to be deported. So, um, so you have to then I, you know have to you have to frame your anxiety with around your kids. So for us, it's always been like, look what people are doing on the ground. Look, look what the people people who we know who are still going to be organizing, whoever is in power on January 20th, they're still going to be at that, you know, doing their community work. They're still going to be trying to get health care for this person. So we, we just kind of um, look to those people, the people who are on the ground, no matter what's happening. The long game. The long game, yes. Excellent. That reduces the anxiety because there, there's, there's going to be challenges no matter who is the president of the United States. And then if it doesn't work out, there's always divorce. I've been looking at recumens <laughs> right now, so we'll see. <laughs> they love books, and they love reading, and they love writers. In any case, I can't thank you enough. This is such an important discussion. You guys are remarkable. Let us all hope and pray that, um, you know, that we are able to continue this discussion in a really, really incredibly important way. I thank you again. I look forward to giving you guys a hug in the real world. Enjoy and uh, everyone be safe. Thank you.